Professor Hilary Nunn was hired by the English Department to the University of Akron as a Shakespearean scholar. Her current work is fascinating, investigating recipe books from as far back as the 15 and 1600s, something Dr. Nunn says can provide a glimpse of everyday life during that time period. It shows how what was considered everyday then is so different from what we consider everyday now. Um, So much of what's in there is actually health-related because all the medicines of the household, most of them were made in the household, as well as food-related. And the question of where is it that they got this food? How did they get those spices? Um, Who is it that's providing them with sugar? Those are all questions that these books raise, um, and they, that makes it all the more fascinating for students who never think about these things. When uh, students discover all the things that people did with garden snails, for example, they're pretty grossed out, um, because normally we don't even think about garden sa- snails, yet alone what they might do to help you make a water that can cure you if you have the plague. Dr. Nunn, as part of a team, is working on a project called the Early Modern Recipes Online Collective with the goal of gathering and transcribing 16th and 17th century recipe books from around the world and displaying them digitally in one organized space. Dr. Nunn says she's actually made a few of the things she's found in the recipe books. I've not made any of the medical ones, but I have made um, some of the ones for food, which are usually... um, better than you would think. And I hate to say it that way, but I know that when I was first learning about Renaissance food, I I was told there are no spices, um, that it was um, rather bland and full of, um, you know, um, basics in a way that would be unappealing. But actually, you see a lot of citrus fruit. um, You see a whole lot of spices um, and a lot of use of different sorts of extracts from flowers and that kind of thing, which make things unusual. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, guest host Jody Cairns in Akron, Ohio, discovers more about Dr. Nunn's intriguing work and how some of the medical recipes actually include some pretty good science. Dr. Hilary Nunn on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. Jody Karens for Run It Like a Girl, and I'm in the Department of English at the University of Akron with Professor Hillary Nunn. Hi, Hillary. Thanks for joining us hey, today. Hey, Jody. Um, so just to get started, can you tell us how you got to Akron? What was your, your personal and academic route that landed you here? Well, uh, the hard part of that about that is always where to start. Um, most directly, I came here from Michigan. Um, I did my doctorate at Michigan State, and before then, um, I was in Tennessee, and then before then, I was an Air Force brat, so I have been many places and had many different accents, so um, we shall see how this one turns out, so. Um, Yeah, so can you just tell us about uh, your experience in uh, academic experience? So what did you do for your undergraduate work, and... Um, how you got interested in what you're interested in today? Well, I always knew that I liked to read and write. Um, I was majorly into journalism when I was in high school, but I didn't really think that would make a very good career. Um, Why I thought that, I don't know. I think it's because I had it in my head that I needed to go abroad 
um, without really knowing what that meant. Um, so I thought I was going to be an international studies major when I was an undergrad. And then I met economics and I thought, that's not really for me. The charts and the graphs scared me. Um, so I kind of half-heartedly um, at first went back to English um, and then discovered that that was exactly what I needed, um, that there was a whole lot more fun in it. And when I say fun, I really meant fun um, because it is something that you get to, to do a great amount of experimentation with. Um, there's a lot of play in English, and that, I think, is what really attracted me to it. Okay, good. So can you uh, talk about your, your, your fun with recipes now? Oh, tell us, so, about that. tell us about that project and your continuing work. Okay. Well, um, I am working on a, a project along with a lot of other people who are, are working on a collaborative project um, that involves transcribing early modern recipe books, usually um, kept and um, and passed down from woman to woman within an early modern household. Um, so these are handwritten, which means most people can't actually access these things. There's only one copy. Um, that is until somebody can actually make them legible for others in the wider world. So even when a library might take digital images of these books, um, they are written in 17th century hands, 18th century hands, which can look really odd to people who are encountering them now. And that's not even considering people who don't know cursive anymore. <laughs> so, um, so our job is um, to take these works, transcribe them, often with the help of students. Um, so much of this is done with classes um, and encode them so that they can not only be legible, but computer searchable. Um, there are hundreds of these books and they contain so much about the workings of early modern households and, and the, the questions of what kind of knowledge was circulating and in print at that time period that nobody has really had access to before. And so we're making that accessible. And they are recipe books, um, which means that they are something that is somewhat familiar to us because they're every day in nature. But at the same time, it, it shows how what was considered every day then is so different from what we consider every day now. Um, so much of what's in there is actually health related um, because all the medicines of the household, most of them were made in the household as well as food related. And the question of where is it that they got this food? How did they get those spices? Um, who is it that's providing them with sugar? Those are all questions that these books raise. Um, and they, that makes it all the more fascinating for students who never think about these things. One of the things I, I tell my students all the time in Shakespeare classes when they get very lofty in their discussion about how is it that people are thinking about the world, I remind them that they didn't have indoor plumbing in the Renaissance and they're shocked because they think these people know everything or nothing. It's usually an extreme. And these books, these recipe books, show them a totally different angle on that way of thinking. Um, when students discover all the things that people did with garden snails, for example, they're pretty grossed out um, because normally we don't even think about garden snails, yet alone what they might do to help you make a water that can cure you if you have the plague. So, um, so yes, it's pretty fascinating to see students react to these books, and it's very interesting to think about the ways that we are um, learning from them as scholars as far as what it was like to be a woman in the early modern period. Um, 
And that's not to say that men aren't involved in these books, too. Um, and in fact, there are a lot of people who are talking about the ways that these sorts of domestic experiments overlapped with what we think of as Enlightenment science. Um, and thinking about that connection certainly puts into a different perspective the roles of women and the work they did in their distilling, for example, or in their experiments um, in trying to cure people who showed up at their doorstep, um, unable to figure out why they're why they weren't healing. Um, there's so many wound, uh, so many um, recipes, for example, for old sores, which just make you realize how trying life was at that time and how much experimentation people had to do in order to figure out what is the cure for this thing? Can anything be done for this person? Something that you just said about these recipe books is that they help you uh, understand what a day in the life of a, mm -hmm. you know, 17th century woman or yeah. whatever the date was. Can you tell us what a day in the life of any woman you've met from these <laughs> uh, these recipe books? I mean, do you have a favorite? What was her life like? Oh, well, there are several people who are... Um, very interesting to me. Um, one of my favorite people um, right now is um, uh, is Elizabeth Downing. Um, and then um, she, for some reason, uh, she, she actually met with some success. She, she had a pretty wide network. Um, her text is actually held at the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. Um, and her book um, influenced her son, who was a pretty big mover and shaker in um, the, the Puritan movement, um, enough that he pay, paid to have someone copy it. And then somehow or another, that book um, got passed to a woman named Anne Layfield. And it's interesting because why Anne Layfield um, is one of those questions that um, my collaborator, Rebecca LaRush, and I have never been able to answer. We have lots of ideas, but nothing quite has solidified yet. Um, because Anne Layfield was a fairly ordinary person from what we can tell. And in fact, there are several Anne Layfields, and we're not sure which one is the person who actually held this book. Um, but Anne Layfield, too, seems to be um, connected to a lot of very important people because she cites them um, in the margins of her recipe book as um, sources for what it is that she is writing down. Um, one thing that we think um, her this recipe book shows that's kind of interesting is that there's a, um, a, a kind of recipe that's written down for city use and a kind that's written down for country use. So it shows that, that it may not be daily life, but there's this sense that you have to be prepared for living in either place. And that depends on season. Um, it depends on it, it and it, it affects the availability of your ingredients. So that's something that happens um, in this particular book because it shows not necessarily um, the rhythms of one particular day, but the rhythms of a season. And you'll see those rhythms in a lot of different books um, where there are, are recipes that you make at certain times of year because of availability. Like all butter is made in May, for example. <laughs> and so, um, enough that for the whole year? It, enough for the whole year. So it, it's, I, I don't know what was so much better about the butter in May, but, but that was milk. the thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that kind of seasonal rhythm is something that, that these books make really clear. Um, there are people, however, whose lives are just so remarkable, um, and their recipe books 
highlight that. Um, Anne Fanshawe, for example, um, was the wife of a diplomat. And so she has recipes um, for all kinds of things from different places, Portugal and Spain, as well as from Ireland. And she collected these when she was traveling around with her husband. And they were in a great deal of political intrigue at the time. So they often left in the middle of the night to get out of certain places and go other sp to other spots. But she has um, a whole series of recipes about making perfumes just to put on gloves um, which was a really big deal, but she Pretty also, fancy. yeah, she, she, um, names her tutor in Spain for, for this practice. And she, and he, this guy keeps showing up. So there's a guy named Francisco Moreno who was walking her through this process and she, um, could count on him. He was there and reliable and it, it was important for her to remember his name and to, to give attribution to him. And it seems, um, that, that she saw him on repeated occasions, which is a, a thing that is rare in a recipe recipe book. You'll often have someone named, but you won't necessarily know if they're named because they were always there or because they only were there once. But she makes it very clear that she saw him on, on different dates. Uh, are all of these books written by women? We don't know. We do know that there are men who are involved in many of them. So it's kind of nice to think about whole families, you know, gathering around the stove to create something. It's the original hard drive. Yeah, it really is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Holding all the family uh, secrets, I want to mm -hmm. say. The... I mean, if you think about the number of people who are getting genetic tests to find out what is it that my family suffers from? What historically has been the reason for um, the deaths in, in our families? Well, looking at these recipe books, you can tell a lot of times um, who has what kinds of, of diseases that, that might have been environmental because people often lived in the same area for a long time, but could have been genetic. Um, there, there are lots of families where it's really clear um, that digestive issues are part of what they suffer from. Others... There, there are some whole families where everybody has gout. You can just tell, you know, there, there are a lot of issues with that kind of thing. Um, and so you can tell an awful lot about um, the actual kind of um, daily lived experience in these, these bodies that are related to one another. So and are you sort of assuming it's gout or is it named gout? Oh no, it's named it's gout. Named gout. So um, do you often see lists of symptoms yes. and you make assumptions about? Well, in recipe books, you can see um, that there are multiple um, kinds of ways of treating gout. So the idea might be that, well, this one works in the spring, but I'll try this one later on. Or when this one loses effectiveness, you have another one to go to. Um, sometimes it can, it can come with a kind of sense of desperation um, that, that um, there will be something that um, you can see that they tried and it didn't work, often because there's a big X through it. Oh, <laughs> um, that's good. Notes, right. Notes for next time. Lots of notes in these books. And so you can tell um, that, that there was an awareness that not everything would be right for everybody. Um, so you wanted to mark that this recipe didn't work, but you also wanted to keep it around just in case it worked for someone else. Wow. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing recipes, medicinal recipes, treatments for both physical and mental ailments? Melancholy um, is something that there are treatments for. Um, of course, melancholy was considered to be a actual um, physical problem, um, which manifested itself in mood, 
Um, and so, I mean, in that sense, it's not unusual um, for our way of thinking. Um, but it wasn't as if diagnosis um, had that much to do with the idea of an interview, for example. <laughs> there, It was about what kinds of physical symptoms were exhibited and how was it that you would treat those symptoms. Um, so... So that's something you would see there quite often. There's also one of my favorite things, actually, about these books is um, green sickness, um, which was a disease that was peculiar to girls at puberty, where um, we would often... It just it sounds like anemia, um, but there's also a psychological component to it that young girls would get very pale, and they would get very listless, and their blood was considered to be very um, slow. <laughs> and and so um, there are many treatments. And, and later in this period, they start using a lot of metallic um, cures. So ground-up steel would be something that would go into the pills. But the earlier kinds, and, and yeah, they made pills. That, to me, took a while to yeah. realize. Like press. they would make, yes, they would press them. But... But earlier in the period, one of the it, it's one of the few places where you see exercise given as a cure. Um, if you have green sickness, you should you should take this and then follow with exercise. Um, and so that that's an interesting way for us to think about a a, a kind of prescription for what to do um, if Maybe you find exercise speeds up. Yes, <laughs> it speeds up your slow blood and it raises, you know, we would say it raises your endorphins. They didn't talk about it in that way, but that it would elevate your mood. And if all of that didn't work, and in fact, sometimes the first thing people would think about as a cure is just to marry her off. Oh. Because the idea is that her body is all closed and it's ready for, for sex. And that as soon as she's opened up, everything will be fine. <laughs> so um, I know <laughs> the, the language of close and open is very strange in these books but it is very much related to sex and that cured a lot of things. Yeah. So do you see yourself using sort of our modern knowledge of medicine to sort of make diagnoses of these folks who are popping up in these families? Um, I try not to, uh -huh. but I'm sure I do. I, um, you know, when you see these kinds of cures, it's often, hard not to judge them as, you know, crazy or dangerous or nonsensical. Um, but because we know so much more. Oh, of course. Right. And, and the actual science behind some of it is not terrible. Um, so, I mean, there are very few, one of the things I just want to say, because I think most people, when they first hear about Renaissance medicine, think it's all about bloodletting. Um, it's not something you really see that much of in these texts. Um, so that's a nice thing, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, that, um, that this is far more about what we consider to be diet cures in many ways. Um, um, the idea that what you eat constantly, changes who you are um, is fundamental to these books. So um, that's helpful um, to, to bear that in mind. So I think about those sorts of similarities more than I do the distance, the differences. There's something very holistic about these books um, because you don't have, um, oftentimes um, these are books that are for people who don't have ready access to a doctor. So the idea that you would be um, coping with an accident that happened um, in, in your neighborhood, um, that's one kind of medical work. But the other kind of medical work, the idea that you are nursing someone through a fever, a lot of what's done then is the kind of thing that we do now. Um, and so 
that, that there's something, yeah, there's something really sort of um, comforting about that. Though there are, are many times things that you read and you think, wow, that's scary. <laughs> I've seen, um, I see in some old books sometimes people, people talking about cures for things that we now know are uncurable. Um, Do you see, for well, example, rabies? Yes. Oh, there are all sorts of rabies cures. Um, there are books that have multiple um recipes for treatments for the biting of a mad dog. Um, that's the way they're normally titled. And it will um, be specified in some cases whether this is a cure for an animal in case your horse was bitten by a, bad, a, a mad dog or a person. Um, and so there are those sorts of um, cures that are out there. And they are often marked as being successful, which makes you wonder what kind of madness did the dog have? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we can't know that for sure. Well, and I just think the modern, mm -hmm. you know, woman in where we live in this country, we don't have to think about no. cures for rabies. No. So it really is also across these books an interesting yeah. just commentary about the things that women had to worry about. Right. We don't anymore historically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever made any of these recipes? I've not made any of the medical ones, but I have made um, some of the ones for food, which are usually... Um, better than you would think. And I hate to say it that way, but I know that when I was first learning about Renaissance food, I, I was told there are no spices, um, that it was, um, rather bland and full of, um, you know, um, basics in a way that would be unappealing. But actually you see a lot of citrus fruit. Um, you see a whole lot of spices, um, and a lot of use of different sorts of extracts from flowers and that kind of thing, which make things unusual. I made an orange pudding last summer that um, was part of an experiment to see exactly what kind of definitions people might have had for egg, um, which is odd to think about because we think about eggs as being a standard size. But um, the, in this experiment, there was a, um, a recipe that at first called for eight eggs and then they had crossed that out and put in 24 eggs. Wow. <laughs> it's a big difference because they didn't change any of the other ingredients. So I made the eight egg version and I had a friend who made the 24 egg version and we compared and it, it they were totally different orange puddings that resulted. Um, they were both good, but one was far more of a souffle and the other was far more of a pudding. <laughs> so uh, really sometimes the only way you can know what you're dealing with is to make it. Um, and so um, last summer, I also um, made ink with a colleague, and that was really interesting because, How did you do that? well, it you you have galls, oat galls, and vinegar, and um, a vinegar that you make from beer, um, and this is what you put together um, along with. Um, some other chemicals <laughs> that, of course, they just happen to have. I don't know how they knew what they were doing. Um, but there are lots of recipes, too, for ink. Um, and they do come out with different consistencies. Um, so guar gum is in ink. I still don't know how you would get guar gum if you were um, somebody who was working in the country in England at that time. But evidently, you had to have it to keep your recipe book. So. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. That's great. Here's the tough question. <laughs> if you could talk with your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Well, it's funny because some of the things that I would say um, and, and that I realized as a result of our conversation, um, I, I'm not 
now that I've, I've thought about it, I'm not sure um, that I would actually benefit from some of the things I would say, because one of the things that um, I thought I would say in answer to this question was trust your instincts more, um, because I always have felt like I worked really hard to cover all my bases. But in 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 retrospect, I don't think I would undo any of that. I don't think I would want to, for example, not have done the internships that made it clear to me I wanted to be a professor. Um, but I do think having more initial faith in those abilities would have been a really nice thing. I think I had some ideas early on that I wasn't quite sure I should follow up on. And if I had when I first had them, who knows what difference that would have made. So I think that's something I, I definitely would have said, um, that being cautious is a great thing in most situations, but there is something about um, that, that love for what it is that, that you know you really want to do um, that you shouldn't really you know, toss aside, um, that there are things that you have to pursue um, because if you don't, you're going to regret it. And to, to simply take that to heart more, I think that would have been a really valuable thing. Thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, no, thank you. Today's episode of Run It Like a Girl was hosted by the multi-talented Dr. Jody Cairns. Brian Long was the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk. On the next episode of Run It Like a Girl, Caroline Granger grew up on the farm fields of Prince Edward County, south of Belleville, Ontario, and it's to the county she would return after a decade abroad. The single mother of three planted 10 acres of vineyards and became a pioneer in the now thriving wine industry in Ontario's Prince Edward County. Vintner Caroline Granger on the next episode of Run It Like a Girl.